We're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Ted and Diana are in the newsroom. Will is on the board. Justin Bieber is getting his own line of Timbits. I guess the fashion deal fell through. Here's Scott Thompson! All right, uh, we've talked a lot about supply chain shortages and stuff that's not available and, you know, bop, 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 bop. Um, obviously, it's affected virtually every industry as time goes by. They say it will be temporary, but still probably a year or so before things get back to normal, whatever that is. Uh, Lorraine Sommerfeld's new column in the spec, they don't build them like they used to, talks about uh, how we're kind of left to do with what uh, with what we have uh, until something better arrives. Lorraine is with us now, auto writer with Post Media, mother load column in the spec and host of the Lemonade Car Show. Lorraine, how are you? I hope you're well. Not bad, not bad. How are you? I'm doing good. So is it they're not building things like they used to, or is it we are sounding more and more like our parents? <laughs> um, actually, for once, I think we are justified. They are building crap. And why do you think that is? I mean, I remember having Marvin Ryder on one time. This was years ago, talking about the disposable society. Even shirts that you get from places made probably by some, you know, child labor thing. You know, they you wear them for like a season, and then the washing machine, when it works, spits the you know, chews them up and spits them out. Well, I think I remember I used to work at Consumers Distributing. Bing, 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 bing. Yeah, my favorite store. Yeah, and. We saw firsthand, like, we tons of appliances. And remember Braun? Braun shavers and Braun yeah, dryers. Yeah, they were great. Stuff like that? Well, Braun went from having everything made in Germany with a three-year warranty. They started making a lot of their stuff uh, in China and other places. But yeah. they didn't tell anyone, so the label was still the same. And we started seeing all this stuff coming back. And people are going, wait a minute. I spent twice as much and bought a Braun, you know, because it was the yeah. Yeah. And this was thirty over 30 years ago when this was starting. And I think one of the things that scared me, and I couldn't find out where I read it, so I couldn't put it in the column. Um, somebody was writing about new homes. And they mm. basically built to last the length of a mortgage, like 30 wow. years. Wow, yeah. And everyone I know that's bought a new house is gutting kitchens and bathrooms in 10 years, 15 years. Yeah. So unless you, you know, individually contract and build it yourself. Even homes, and that's horrible. My house, there's parts of it I hate, but man, it was built in the 60s. It's going to be around a long time. Yeah, it's solid. You know, but we we hate the quality, but we love the price, and that's what it's about. It's, you know, everything has got tremendously cheaper in the last decade, and now we're paying the price. Well, I think we're addicted to it, and one of the best examples of that is TVs. I don't know. I remember no. my parents getting the, the first TV, you know, the console yeah. TV thing, and it was $600, and this is back in the 60s, late yeah. 60s. Now, uh, you can get a TV for 300 bucks, a great big flat screen, and people are yeah. buying them and disposing of them because one tube will, they're not tubes anymore, but, you know, sensors yeah. will get shot or something. We're doing it with cars. It's this whole disposable thing, and uh, yeah, I sound like my parents probably, except they knew stuff had to last, and it was worth repairing. And now it's funny I'm you, so angry. It's funny you were talking about your, 
you were talking about the fridge at your cottage and, and how old it was. I remember my parents' house. They they still had the first fridge that they bought back in 1952, the year they got married. Yep. And we sold my parents' house a couple of years ago, and somebody took the fridge, and it's still running because it's one of those classic-looking fridges. And that thing would go forever. Now, when it came on, I think all the all the houses in the neighborhood dimmed because it sucks so much juice. But, yeah, it lasted forever. And, you know, we're replacing – you know, we've replaced the couple – and our neighbor just yesterday, he's dragging one out of his garage into the onto the uh, under the driveway, and they're hosing it down. I don't know what the heck happened to it. I think it like it caught fire. So uh, it's bizarre how like fridges, especially ten years, you're done. Yeah, and that that's horrific because yeah. these things are huge, and there's nothing worse than I, I've got repair places that I really like, and I'll call and they'll go, "It's not worth repairing." Yeah, you know, when you hear that, you're thinking, "I'm willing." to fix the toaster. I had this happen yeah. with the toaster last year. It was the day after a year, I swear. And I go online because YouTube is fabulous and can tell you how to fix anything, but even getting a part. And I fixed yeah. my own dryer several times, you know, with belts and stuff because you can find really cool mm-hmm. places to learn how to do this. But these big, chunky pieces of appliances are just tossed. And I think I bought into, 20 years ago, we were all buying into the more energy-efficient stuff. So you didn't feel quite so guilty replacing an older appliance because yeah. you knew that it was going to take less energy. But we're past that crap now. Like, yeah, good point. That. I had to replace a furnace this week. Yeah. And it's yeah. 10 years old. Yeah, that's insane. That is insane. Um, what about, you know, post-COVID-19 or COVID-19, wherever we are, uh, shop local, stress on shop, local, uh, local help the local uh, businesses, what have you. Now that we're getting out of a, a pandemic, things start to pick, uh, pick up. Are we going to see that continue? Or are we just going to look for the best buy again from, uh, you know, the Walmarts and Costcos of the world? Well, where can you buy a locally made TV Working in yeah, a locally man. made fridge. Most of the, we ran all the cut and sew shops out of Brantford 20 years ago because I used to be in that business. Um, we've run out the fruit farms. We're offloading everything. We're paving over farmland. It's like we want it from halfway around the world because it's cheap, and we don't realize that there's a lot of currencies at play here, not just dollars, but this chasing the cheap stuff. And I, I actually I have more faith because a lot of the younger people in my life, my kids and their friends and stuff. They're great at thrift stores. They don't want things. They're going the other way. And I remember yeah. in the eighties when we came out with bad yeah. hair and worse fashion, yeah. and it was about yeah. accumulating because <laughs> our yeah. parents were like, "Oh, you spoiled kids. You want a new coach when you move out." And we're like, "Yeah, we can get it and pay for it for two years." You know? I, there's another. There's another great example as opposed to taking the one you know, mom's old one. That's that's yeah. exactly another well, I, great example. I have more faith in the yeah. generation coming up. Maybe I just have a too narrow anecdotal slice of that but i really think they got to live with the planet we've created and handed them this dumpster fire and you know at least we got to do our part and stop but and with shortages now we're going to find a way to fix some stuff because you're not going to be able to get your fridge for six it's going to be interesting coming out of this pandemic because it will not be the same world when we went in and uh, people are going to have to adapt it's as simple as that lorraine somerville with us you can read her column in the spec why don't they build them like they used to oh cars they're lasting forever lorraine when you can get one they're lasting forever that's one good thing all right lorraine thanks so much be well talk to you bye 
want to bring in Gordon Holden, director of the China Institute and professor of political science with the University of Alberta. Talk about the COP26 coming to an end and China and the United States, some sort of agreement, deal, I don't know, in regard to coal production and consumption. And also uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping rewriting history and in doing so, giving himself a little bit more power. Uh, Gordon Holden is with us now. Gordon, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I am well, thank you. Uh, let's start with uh, the COP26. What's the significance of this deal between China and and the U.S.? What is it? I'm, I don't think it's a deal. What is it exactly? Well, it's fairly detailed. It's a lot of wishful thinking, and but promises to meet and set up a working group, etc., do joint research. I think the, the significant part really is simply the fact that these are the two biggest polluters, hands down, China, China the biggest by far, and, and basically um, you know, almost a third of total greenhouse gas production coming out of China. United States second, but, but a long way behind China at this point. But they're willing to cooperate is good news. It's one of these things that you can't, if you don't have those two on board, nothing can get fixed. So that is in itself good news. But I personally think this has got a lot to do with that meeting coming up on Monday, we think, virtual meeting between C and and Biden. There's been a number of comments. Uh, uh, Biden's national security advisor on the 7th uh, of uh, November speaking to uh, CNN, putting a fairly positive spin on the relationship. Xi Jinping sent a message to the um, national U.S. National Committee on uh, on China um, on 10th, same day as that statement came out. There had been sort of a drum roll of positivity, trying, I think, to set the stage for what's going to happen on Monday. So I think it's as much about bilateral politics in the U.S. and China as it is about greenhouse gases. Many have complained for years that these two weren't on board and that this was just sort of kicking the can around until they did get on board. Do they see progress here? Do they see this as a opportunity? Well, it's hard for anyone, I think, to come out, even the UN Secretary General, to come out with a positive. And I think you're always going to find someone saying something negative about it. Yeah. Uh, the fact that they're talking, um, albeit, and you're quite right, it's not hard, hard fast um, promises, but uh, it's a long list of things they intend to do together. Uh, it's got to be seen in, in, in a positive light. Now, of course, as we know in Canada, promising one thing on climate and actually doing it are two quite separate things. So, you know, they, if they follow up with action and if this collaboration, cooperation between the two is meaningful, that'll be great. But for the time being, I see it more as a political signal. All right, the uh, Chinese president rewriting history and giving himself more power. Is this the Chinese Communist Party becoming more communist? Well, yeah, very good point. I mean, it was um, Deng Xiaoping. So now Xi Jinping's put himself up on a plateau with Mao and with Xi Jinping um, as the three most important individuals in history of the People's Republic of China. Uh, I... I've seen, I lived in many communist, several communist countries on three different continents, and they all have slightly different structure. Um, some are totally dominated by one individual. That'd certainly be true for Fidel Castro, for Mao, and for uh, Stalin, let's say. Others have a, have had a sort of a collaborative leadership. That's what Deng Xiaoping tried to put in after, to last after he died, and that did last, let's say, now for, um, for a couple decades. But I think it's unraveling, and they're going back to one person basically owning the show. 
Uh, he does have to have support for the military. He does have to support, have to have support, significant support from the party. But you have to look back all the way to Deng to find one individual so dominant in the Chinese system. So is he president for life? Will he be? Is everybody on board with that? <laughs> he can't quite call himself that, I guess. But I do yeah. have the impression now that he's changed, the Constitution has been changed, that he's now getting a third term, uh, that he is in a position to remain as president as long as he's able. Uh, the tricky thing in communist governments is transition. They don't always do it that well because strong men, they're all men in this case, tend to hang on. Uh, and that means sometimes a very messy transition when they begin to weaken. That's part of what brought down the Soviet Union. My part was a, my opinion was a struggle at the top. So for now, he's king. Uh, he's emperor, if you wish. But well, if if there should be serious internal problems, uh, a loss of war, um, uh, a collapse in the economy, none of those are likely. Uh, then I think he'd be challenged. Otherwise, he's in a good position to hang on for a long time. He's in his 60s. Uh, he could be there, in theory, another heavens, another 20 years. I have no, no guarantee of that, but it's possible. Uh, so people in China obviously following along with, with whatever the, the status quo is or what he says. What about relations with other countries? What does this do for that? Especially when many are looking at China right now as, as uh, being a little adversarial. Well, China is being somewhat more adversarial, and I think that comes from, I call it just the physics of power. As they become more powerful, they have the capacity to be, to get their way more often and to be more adversarial. Uh, for some countries, I think they might look at China and say, well, at least we know who we're going to be dealing with. He's a known quantity now, and, and that's the, uh, that's whom we're going to have to make deals. Um, that's better, I suppose, than a chaotic situation where you never know who's going to be in charge. And even now, I suspect the Chinese are hedging their bets as to who's going to be the leader in America in 2024, when Trump come back, etc. These are things that uh, uncertainty is never good. Certainty is usually good. Um, but on the other hand, he's capable. He's done a reasonable job of managing the various crises Chinese have faced, including COVID. So it's probably very good news for Chinese power. Um, but I think for relationships, um, well, we have the certainty now, but uh, it's certain that he's going to be autocratic, non-democratic, and uh, not hesitant to crack down where he sees the need. Gordon Holding with uh, or Gordon Holden with us, director of the China Institute, professor of political science, University of Alberta. I didn't even get a chance to ask you how this affects Hong Kong or Taiwan. That's a completely different story. Gordon, thank you for the time. Be well. It's a pleasure. Thanks so much, and uh, good health to you as well. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. COVID-19 cases are on the rise. There has been some new modeling data that has come out today suggesting that uh, things are going to, uh, numbers are going to go up a bit. However, this is a completely different scenario because so many of us are vaccinated. Let's bring in Dr. Timothy Sly, epidemiologist, uh, School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University, and with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Yes, Scott. Good afternoon. So uh, your thoughts, first of all, on the modeling that came out today. They were talking we could see uh, upwards of 200 in, in the ICU by Christmas time. What are your thoughts on what we're seeing? 
Well, I was watching that uh, RT number, and it's uh, last time we spoke, it was, uh, I don't know, at 0.86 or something like that, looking quite promising. And now today I see this 1.15. It's, it's above the 1, which means that we're into some kind of an exponential growth again. I think the doubling now is about 11 to 15 days. We're going to see a doubling. So right now we're at about 600 a day. Give it another week and a half or two weeks. Is that going to be 1,200? I mean, I don't want that to happen but it's so what we need to do is to stick to what seems to work and we, obviously we are seeing uh many vaccinated now uh the fourth wave certainly different from the second and and third and first and such what are you anticipating uh between now and christmas well, you're absolutely right. I mean, if we, this time last year, it was it, we were staring down a, a pretty grim picture. But I don't think we're going to see that with the vaccines currently. Now, remember, look, we're looking at the whole population, not mm-hmm. this sort of eligible population. And that, that currently is about 74%-ish for Canada, roughly. Now, we need that really to be up to about 92 or something. So we're still a bit below, but we're much, much better than we were even six months ago and certainly 12 months ago. So I don't think we're going to see a massive peak as we've seen in many other countries. We've seen some in Denmark and the UK and in certain selected areas in the United States. We're not going to see that, I think. Uh, Manitoba is a bit worrying, mainly if you look at it. I mean, the, the, the places where the vaccinations haven't been as successful as Ontario, that's where we're seeing the real hot spots at the moment. Oh, and a feather in the cap of uh, Hamilton at the moment, just, just you know, fingers fingers crossed at the moment they're not doing so badly their, their numbers aren't increasing week over week but just uh, just we got to be cautious about that uh this was predicted we did talk about this uh as people would go back indoors through the fall and such um and again when you're hearing these numbers seeing these numbers creep up in the as we head into the winter months uh, obviously it's concerning but also in the wings is hopefully approval for the Pfizer vaccine from Health Canada, which will get us started on the kids 11 uh, to 5, 5 to 11 years of age. So will that come just in time sort of, you know, to sort to sort of put a cap on this or, or, or stop it from getting too high through, say, January, February, March? Oh, you're thinking along the right lines, uh, Scott. There's no question about it. But there's this delay factor. And we see a delay factor built in yeah. what we were talking about a second ago in, in terms of why we're seeing the numbers going up now. Was it really to do with Thanksgiving or Halloween? Because that's a one- to three-week delay. And then working in the future, as you're talking about here, well, they say, uh, I heard this today, a statement from the uh, NACI is simply going to say one to two weeks they should get approval. I know that Canada's ordered a huge number of vaccines. So let's assume that the approval does get given. We're now at about, what, halfway through uh, November? A couple of weeks, it'll be by the end of November. Shall we say the kids begin to be lined up and vaccinated? I know 50% of the parents want the kids done as soon as possible. Another 25% are sort of going to wait a bit. Another 25% sort of digging in their heels. I'm not quite sure what why they're doing that, but even so. So that's the end of Jan- end of November. Um, Christmas holidays are going to come, be coming along, of course, in another yeah. three weeks after that. And that's, it's going to be touch and go, quite honestly. We've got the stuff in the kids. Let's get that sorted out. It's. Uh, are you willing to predict what the Christmas holidays will be like at this time, or is it still kind of early to, to say? Last last festive season, generally, uh, it was bad. As you remember, we had a big peak in yeah. early January. 
I don't think we're going to see that much of a peak. But remember that uh, we are seeing kids now turning up in, in, yeah. in, in hospitals, and we don't want to see that. So Christmas time, you can imagine the kids being in the hospital, and we don't want to see them bringing home uh, infections for, you know, granddad and grandma and so on. We did see us go through Thanksgiving, though, Tim, with relatively uh, stable numbers. Are, can we hope for the same? And again, I know I'm asking you questions you cannot answer, but uh, or, or you th- are you thinking that it might be a little bit more close than, say, Thanksgiving was? Well, I think it's all going to be suppressed compared to last yeah. year. But remember that we did. We uh, I was expecting a little more numbers within, shall we say, ten to fourteen days after Thanksgiving. Well, the numbers didn't seem to increase yeah. straight away, and therefore I think there's a bit a longer delay. Are we seeing right now the figures that are going on in in Ontario and across the rest of Canada? Is this a result of Thanksgiving and uh, and Halloween? It could well be. That's only about three weeks, you know, and uh, it could mm. well be. All right, Dr. Timothy Sly with us, epidemiologist and School of Population and Public Health, Ryerson University. Always fascinating, Tim. Thanks for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thanks, Scott. Bye-bye. All right, a veteran politician has been appointed to represent Ward 5 voters until next fall's municipal election. Former Dundas councillor and Liberal MP Russ Powers has been selected by Hamilton City Council to fill the Ward 5 vacancy created by Chad Collins when he jumped to uh, the federal uh, politics and became his own Liberal MP for Hamilton East Stony Creek. Russ Powers is with us now. Russ, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. Congratulations. Congratulations to you. Thank you very much. So why did you want to jump into this, Russ? What made you want to get into this ring? Um, even well, even though it is for a limited amount of time. Any politics for about seven years. And the fact that it's uh, just a, uh, a a short appointment, you know, mm-hmm. perhaps the you know, 11 months may feel like forever after it's over and done with. But, <laughs> uh, but it's not like I'm running for, for council for the... Also, is because of the short period of time, there's, uh, I felt there was a need for somebody with experience who knows procedures and policies to come back in again. And uh, so I decided after speaking to a, a number of people and decided, well, give it a shot. So it turned out I was one of the candidates out of the 21 who applied. All great people. I listened to every one of them make their presentations and some great ideas and some great comments. And some of them I'm going to actually talk to them about afterwards about issues as they're ready to Ward 5. So uh, many showed attraction to this because of it, you know, sort of a limited time thing. That being said, is this you putting your foot back in the water? Any chance of the future, something else coming out of this? I don't, I, I you know, I don't think, you, should, you know, you should never say no, but the the expectation is, you know, come November next year when the new council is sworn in, I won't be part of it. So lots of chatter, especially of late, of uh, the culture around City Hall. As we all know, Hamilton, you know, even long before the, the COVID-19 pandemic, was going through quite a, a renaissance, quite a metamorphosis. Uh, what about, uh, wh- you know, the mood at City Hall? What can you do? What can you bring from, obviously, your experience as a federal politician to, to calm the waters down there? Well, I mean, it, it's it's a matter, in, in my opinion, the time that we had the most successful councils was when we were able to sort out issues that were common ground. Um, If we could find consensus, if we could find compromise on issues and move ahead on them, have a lot of small wins. And I think, you know, Hamilton has been basically dealing with, uh, for example, you know, the Shadow Creek travesty is something that uh, 
was unexpected, but it's taken a lot of time and a lot of air out of council. So let's deal with those major issues and, and how we can address them. At the same time, let's look at some quick uh, um, wins that would put council back in the, uh, in the win column. How will it be coming out of a global pandemic? How is that going to change the role? Because obviously, if this was a situation without a global pandemic, it would be quite a bit different coming into this position. Now, with the city dealing with what every government, whether it's municipal, provincial, federal, whatever, is dealing with, how is that going to change things in the next year or so? Well, you, you know, in the immediacy, it's not going to change because the rules keep on changing all the time and uh, and you really don't know what the rules are until they're actually dropped on you. So I think we're going to be in, you know, in crisis management and reaction management for a short period of time. What my concern is, is that the uh, the business areas of our, of our city, you know, downtown uh, Stony Creek, uh, the extension of, uh, of Queen Street Easterly, into Ward Five, all those areas have been impacted by the uh, by the by the pandemic. So, uh, among things, the city must work together in order to restore some um, buoyancy back into the business community because the business community employs people and gives us places to go. So, I think that needs to be a a side uh, um, discussion of of council to take us out of the uh, of the pandemic. Um, staffing is a challenge. I mean, there's a staffing challenge right at the uh, at the city. People have chosen not to come mm. back to work, and therefore there's an impact on the not only the outside workers but the inside workers. So how are we going to con- contend with that? So there's going to be a lot of discussions over the next uh, few months, and hopefully we can be in a rebound situation come the uh, early in the new year. How do you think the LRT discussion is going to play into the next year? Um, I and, you know, the, the council's made the decision with regards to LLT, as you probably know, is I was probably the earliest opponent to it. And I still have some concerns, but the council has made that decision. I'm not going to be one that gets in the way. It's a matter of affordability is and, and you know, the city still doesn't have those answers as to, you know, what the city's going to be on the uh, the hook for and translating that into um, thousands or even millions of dollars. So uh, um, that's going to be the next steps and the next discussions with regards to, uh, to you know, LRT. What about challenge for you personally as you get up to speed with all of this? Um, well, that's part of my own thinking process, Scott, to get to this particular point was that, you know, I've... As, as much as an outsider can keep their eyes and ears on it, you count on the, uh, you know, the print materials and the radio and the televisions and that to keep you kind of in the loop what's what's going on and what you can read on uh, online on the city's website. Um, I'm as informed as an outsider can be. Um, where I have the advantages, having been a, a long-term uh, and uh, long-term Hamilton councillor. I know what the processes and the procedures are. So for me, the learning curve is going to be very, very short. It's just a matter of, uh, uh, you know, working with my assigned staff and, uh, and and getting the office up and running, even though the office is virtually like everybody else. So uh, um, for me, I don't think it's going to be a major challenge to get on to get into uh, into the process.
Former Dundas Councilor and Liberal MP Russ Powers has been selected by Hamilton City Council to fill the uh, vacancy in Ward 5 created by Chad Collins when he moved on. Russ, thanks so much for the time. Good luck moving forward with all of this. Thanks a lot, and go Tide Hats, go. The last couple of weeks we've been chatting about, uh, and, you know, people always love it to watch, you know, rich people fight. There's nothing better than a watching a rich family toss the buns around the uh, dinner table and things can get ugly and such. A lot of people comparing it to TV shows, what have you. But at the end of the day, this is still a uh, telecom company that has a great deal of power uh, in this country and a lot of customers and employees in you and I. So uh, with the Rogers situation, obviously... A discrepancy between uh, Ed Rogers, who has control of the shares of the company, the trust, sorry, uh, and shares, 97% of the shares, and uh, his mother and two sisters, who obviously uh, the two sides going at each other for control of the company ended up with two boards. That went to court, and Edward won that battle. But now what happens? Uh, you win the battle. Do you win the war? Uh, how do you make amends with the people you've been tossing buns at? And how does the company move forward as a giant telecom company after what has just happened? Let's bring in Marvin Ryder, professor at Groot School of Business, McMaster University. He's with us now. Marvin, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I'm very well, thank you. Glad to be with you. So what happens now, Marvin? I mean, uh, you know, although the courts decided what is what is going on, I mean, I don't think this problem's over, is it? No. So if you don't mind, can we just go back to a week ago, almost exactly at this moment, a week ago, when the B.C. court issued a ruling? And as you are absolutely correct to say, there was great confusion earlier in that week because you had two chairs of the board and you actually had two different boards. Who's actually running the show? And what the judge said a week ago was that Edward Rogers used all of the tools appropriately to not only replace five board members and create a new independent board of, uh, or a new board, excuse me, not the word independent, board of Rogers, but he also was correct to get himself reinstated as chair of the board. Um, amazing, just absolutely amazing. After all, as you say, all the buns thrown around the dinner table. Uh, interestingly, leading up to the decision, one of the sisters had said, uh, we, meaning the mother and two, two daughters, are prepared to spend anything it takes to stop Edward. The court came out with the ruling, and there is going to be no appeal. The family withdrew any effort to appeal. Rogers has withdrawn any effort to appeal. This is the corporate side. So this stands. Edward wins. Edward's now the chair of the board, and his appointees are running the show. To show conciliation on his part, three hours after the verdict came down, he issued a statement that said, I have absolute confidence in the CEO of Rogers, a gentleman named Joe Natale. He's the right man for the job, even though two weeks earlier he'd been trying to replace Mr. Natale. Now he's got absolute confidence. Well, I think, I think the idea was, look, let's try to kiss and make up. Let's try to make this story go away. But, but let me share with you, Scott, that I don't think it really will. Uh, clearly, <laughs> you know, as we head towards the holiday season, I, I'm not sure I'd want to be a guest at that dinner table on, on Christmas Day uh, as they break bread, if they are all together. Also, I don't think Mr. Natale sleeps very well at night, even with Edward's endorsement, 
we, and that means people like me who look from the outside, believe there is going to be a management shakeup, that probably early in 2022, Mr. Natale will be out, probably some other senior people will be out, and Edward is going to move to replace them with his own hand-picked choices. In fact, I wouldn't necessarily be shocked if Edward himself doesn't put himself in as the CEO. He really wants to, to swing the big hammer, so to speak. And you're also correct in saying, if this was just some little sideshow, it's fine. But this is one of Canada's three biggest telecommunications company. It's worth $30 billion, that's with a B. And they were in the process of buying Shaw, a deal which has been valued at $26 billion. So you put 26 with 30, now you've got a $56 billion company. And what is very serious here is, at this moment, Rogers actually doesn't have the cash to make that deal a reality. So what Mr. Natali has been working on and will continue to work on is putting the financing together to make that deal happen. I would say again, you know, this week he would be meeting with financial people, and I'm sure the first question they said, well, are you, are you really going to be there to make mm. this deal? Are we really talking to the right person? Uh, Edward really threw a monkey wrench into things, and I'm not sure if this isn't going to come back to haunt him over the next few weeks. Especially because, Natalie, that was one of the triggers that started all of this. That was sort of the last straw, wasn't it? Now, how has the company done under his performance? Well, let me, let me again break that into two, two issues, if you don't mind. If I can just look at the last week. So I had wondered on Monday, because remember this announcement came out last Friday after trading had closed, and there's no formal trading on Saturday, Sunday, how would the B-class shareholders, these are the ones who've now been clearly told you're sitting in the back of the limousine, but you can't touch the steering wheel at all, you can't even speak to the driver, you're just along for the ride, how are they going to react? And the Rogers stock went up by $2 a share, uh, it closed the week up more than a dollar than it did a week ago. So clearly the B-class shareholders are not totally upset with this decision. But now if I look at the time Mr. Natale was the CEO, uh, Rogers actually has been underperforming, meaning that the stock was worth more when he became the CEO than it is worth today. And, and part of that, you know, we have to say, look, you had 18 months under COVID. This was a tough time for all businesses in the last 18 months. What could you do? What couldn't you do? Uh, their number of subscribers have gone up, but their revenue per prescriber has actually gone down. And so this is the kind of performance that needed to be addressed. I think I, I think this is going to happen in 2022 now that COVID's going in the rearview mirror. But clearly, Edward felt I, enough was enough. It's time to change horses. And um, uh, he got his way to some extent. But for the moment, he's staying with Natalie. Will this be winning the battle, losing the war? I mean, obviously, there's there's what's happening with the company itself. But also, as you said earlier, uh, the Canadian public is watching this, and they are not very happy with major telecom. They think there needs to be more players and, and less right. control of these big players. Obviously, as you said, there's a merger uh, in the midst of all of this. Will this draw attention and people say, you know what, we've had enough of this. It's, it's con yeah. it, too many, too little people in control of too much. Yeah, no, those are all good questions, and it's not clear to me that although he won this first battle, whether he'll win the war. Question number one is this A-class, B-class share. The family controls 97.5% of the voting shares through this family trust. The B-class shares are the ones that you and I can buy on the stock market, but it's been clearly reinforced that we're going to have no control over anything. We can't even uh, elect the people who are going to serve on, our, on the board to represent our interests. There's a lot of call to see this A-class, B-class thing shaken up, although I do not know who's going to have the leverage to do this. 
other than the financing partners, which gets you to the second part of this, they need to put together this $26 billion financing package. I could imagine that some of the financial people will say, well, okay, we'll help give you the money, but you've got to clear up this A and B class. And to clear that up, it would mean uh, Edward Rogers would have to give up some control. And then I'm just shocked that the, the mother and the two daughters have gone away so quietly because they were so adamant they were prepared to fight Edward at every corner. Have they really tucked their tail between their legs, or are they plotting something only to be revealed in Episode 4 of Succession hmm. a couple of weeks from now? I'm, I'm just not sure. So first battle, score the victory to Edward. He clearly was the big winner, but will he win in the long run? It's just so hard to tell at the moment. Marvin Ryder with us, professor at a group school of business, McMaster University, talking to us about the Rogers soap opera. Marvin, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. Thank you. I will. We've heard lots of chatter about online and disinformation, especially the Facebook uh, stuff going on and what have you. Uh, the Prime Minister uh, virtually attending a Paris Peace Forum saying more needs to be done online to stop hate and disinformation and such. Uh, just words or has anything changed? Let's bring in Carmi Levy, tech analyst, and he is with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Great to be here, Scott. Thanks for having me back. First, let's start uh, with this Paris Peace Forum. Is there any teeth here? Is there any credibility? Lots of chat or anything coming out of it? Well, I wish there were. I wish you know someone could wave a wand. Maybe it's our PM. Maybe it's someone else, and essentially fix this online hatred, misinformation, uh, bullying—you name it—issue that we're that we're you know, unfortunately dealing with. But there really is no way to to stop it. There's no way to you know wave, wave that magic wand and suddenly every everything will will simply go away. It just doesn't work that way. It's, it's, it scores some nice political points to appear uh, among other, uh, virtually among other major world leaders, French presidents, uh, you know, uh, Emmanuel Macron, the US VP Kamala Harris, uh, which sounds lovely. And I, and I, I think it, it's the right thing to do. If you have the opportunity to share that, then by all means, absolutely. But to expect to wake up tomorrow and, and suddenly the internet will be cleaned up that's not going to happen today. It's not going to happen tomorrow and if you, or any time. And if you listen to the details of Prime Minister Trudeau's talk, the reality is, is there are no details. There, there's no, he's saying we should. He's calling for it, but he's not actually providing any substantive details about what he and other government leaders around the world are willing and able to do to achieve that end. So, yeah, nice political theater, but really not a whole lot more there. Uh, speaking of theater, over the last couple of weeks, a couple of weeks ago, we were, you know, Facebook and Zuckerberg, public enemy number one, uh, whistleblowers. Oh, my goodness, look what's happening. Uh, then all of a sudden uh, the metaverse gets uh, introduced and the page is turned. Is there anything to come out of these hearings that we saw and the whole whistle, uh, whistleblow fiasco? I think in the near term, probably not, because it's, it's like the storm is still rolling through and, and it'll take some time for... Uh, us to really, really sort of see that impact. But what's happening now is legislators are finally having their eyes open, primarily in the U.S., but also in the U.K., in Europe, in Canada. They're finally having their eyes open to truly how deep the rot goes at Facebook or Meta or whatever they want to call themselves. And I think they recognize that this company has gone far further than we thought they did in terms of the nasty behavior. I think it's sending a message to, to governments everywhere that big tech really does have a problem and that we need better legislation, better frameworks, better regulatory guidance in place, better governance 
uh, to ensure that they that they behave properly in the best interest of society. So we may not see an impact tomorrow, but I think the seeds are being sown right now for better legislation going forward. Uh, we're even hearing calls in Canada that they are planning to introduce a digital charter, things like that. So maybe in maybe not tomorrow, but in a year, in four years, five years, we will finally start to see actual laws that force companies like Facebook to finally fly right, uh, because if they don't, there will be consequences imposed by governments. And that will right the, the, the pendulum somewhat, because in recent years, as we know, and as you, you and I have spoken about so often, big tech has kind of run away with the story, and they've essentially been doing what they want with no consequences. Well, we're going to see some laws coming in place because of what we're seeing now with the whistleblower and all the other events around Facebook and Meta um, that are going to slowly change that reality for the better for the rest of us. On that note, we've all been watching uh, the the soap opera, which is the Rogers family uh, tossing buns over the high-priced dinner table of who controls the company and such, and many have, have shown interest in this. But over and above all of that and, and the decision, the court decision that, that, that came out last week, uh, this is still a, you know, a pillar of Canada's tech industry and is in the process of merging with another one. Uh, is this winning the battle, losing the war? I mean, what happens with, with the family is one thing, but... Are Canadians looking at this and just shaking their head and saying, well, this isn't a TV show. This is our major, one of our major telecom carriers, and this is another example of too much concentrated power. Canadians have every right to be concerned. And, you know, I've been following both this company as well as the broader telecommunications industry for you know, going on a decade and a half. And I've always, you know, in, in sort of the back halls when people talk about the governance structures of Canada's major telecommunications companies, Rogers has always stood out because the family, the way they structured it was this dual level uh, arrangement that was unique in the country, frankly, unique among telecom companies in the world where the, com- the family has 97% control over the voting shares. Mm-hmm. So you essentially, you can have Rogers shares, but you don't really have any determination in the future of the company. So you know, that's what we're seeing here. Is this could not happen at any other company but Rogers. And while we knew the risk of some kind of, of sort of seismic challenge to the company's future was always there, uh, it always remains in balance. Well, clearly, you know, with this battle, we realize that you know, the bomb has gone off. Uh, and I think a lot of Canadians are concerned, and we have every right to be, because you're right. One, a, a significant pillar of our telecommunications industry has a governance problem, and it seems to have been resolved for now because the B.C. court has ruled in favor of, uh, of Edward Rogers. But the reality is that structure is still in place. And if you're watching the Canadian telecom industry, there are huge question marks now hanging over Rogers' ability to be one of those pillars going forward. Does it have the governance in place to ensure that it is a stable, focused, consistent performer in this market. And right now, there are more questions than answers. And that's kind of frightening from, from that perspective, especially as they face down a 20, potential $26 billion merger with Shaw. Carmi Levy, tech analyst with us, talking uh, about everything tech. As always, Carmi, a blast. Thanks so much for the time. Be well and have a great weekend. I really appreciate being here. Thanks, Scott. John Iveson is with us, writer with the National Post and the latest column. Aaron O'Toole's bigger tent or bigger tent shadow cabinet is a canny move. And John Iveson is with us now. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Thanks, Scott. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. Boy, you've written some interesting columns on uh, the direction of the Conservatives lately. Is this going to give them a bit more credibility? 
Well, I think most times, you know, the, 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 the opposition calls it the shadow cabinet. It's that's a kind of uh, so a, a phrase borrowed from the UK. It's really just opposition critics. It's just a lineup of people who are going to stand up in question period and, and ask the questions of the of the government benches. So, in, so at some level, it's not that big a deal. But I think in others, if you take a closer look at what Erin O'Toole's done here, it is uh, significant as far as his leadership. And the background, obviously, is there has been incredible amounts of dissent uh, towards O'Toole and towards the platform that he introduced in Rana in the, in the election. Uh, many Conservatives complaining it wasn't conservative enough. There were remnants of the Andrew Shear team who were fomenting uh, a lot of uh, bad feeling within the caucus, I think it's fair to say. And then there's obviously the vaccination issue. We saw last week this emergence of a, a civil liberties caucus, which uh, was effectively just people who were not happy with the idea of vaccine mandates and uh, dissented from the from the O'Toole position on it, which is essentially that that um, MPs in Parliament won't won't be allowed into the House unless they're vaccinated. So there's that's the background to it. And I think what he's tried to do, and this is what I say in the column, is that he's tried to adopt the tactic that Stephen Harper had, was that in large measure the caucus policed itself. You know, Harper had this um, image as this kind of dictator who, who ruled with an iron fist. Mm. But even talking to his, his former chief whip and the government house leader, Jay Hill, that's not how it worked, essentially. The caucus felt they were all going in the same direction. There was a sense of mutual respect, of common purpose, and they they regulated uh, how people acted within the caucus. And I think O'Toole wants to try and replicate that. I'm you know, happy to, to get into the weeds in that. Is, is this all about O'Toole's leadership? I mean, this seems like very much in the weeds, inside conservatism. Uh, are they looking at the long game here at all? And, and how what they're saying is, is just not on side with what Canadians are thinking right now, allowing the Liberals just to take pot shots at them that are remnants of the last election campaign? Well, I think eventually, and who knows when eventually will be, but eventually the public is going to get fed up with the Liberal Party and, and Justin Trudeau and turn to an alternative. And you can't be that alternative if you're riven by internal dis, uh, disputes. You know, last week, um, or earlier this week, in fact, O'Toole was talking about uh, uniting the country. Um, and it sounded hollow because he can't <laughs> even unite his own party. So yeah. I think it's a prerequisite to, to being in government. Um, you know, longer term, there are... Some of this is about survival. I think most of it's about survival. Uh, for example, bringing back Pierre Poiliev as, as mm. finance critic. You know, he moved him as finance critic in, in earlier this year, I think January, February. Hardly anybody noticed because Poiliev kept talking about finance. But it did upset some people inside who felt that that uh, Poiliev was an authentic conservative and O'Toole was a bit liberal light, if you like. So I think bringing him back is, is a risk for O'Toole because clearly uh, he, that was a platform for which he could undermine the current leader. But he's also widely recognized as one of the, the, the top performers and he gets under the skin of the Liberals. And after all that, if the job of the opposition is to oppose, the NDP seems to have a very different view of what the, the opposition should do. But, but I think most parliamentarians would agree that you oppose the uh, the government in power. You ask questions. You try to mould public opinion, and Poilievre is very effective at that. 
And just to, to continue on that in that vein, there are a bunch of people who were who were supporters of Peter McKay and the leadership. And when O'Toole got elected, he shunted a bunch of those people. Uh, you know, it's in some ways it's understandable. You reward the people who've backed you. Yeah. But I think it means that you don't necessarily have the best team in place. And so what he's now done is brought a whole bunch of those people back. You know, there's half a dozen very competent MPs who were who were sitting on the back bench who are now back in opposition critic positions. And I think that that will help O'Toole. I mean, he's got... Um, He's now brought some of the McKay team into his own team, into the leadership team, uh, which again I think will will inspire some confidence in the in the caucus. There was a feeling there was a bit of a witch hunt. Uh, O'Toole, I don't think behaved very well when he became leader. He didn't, uh, you know, he was hardly uh, uh, Link, uh, the Abraham Lincoln kind of team of rivals leader. He didn't bring his former competitors into his inner circle. In fact, he. Kept, made sure that Peter McKay was at arm's length and didn't even want him to run in central Nova in Nova Scotia, which seemed to be crazy. But he's now bringing those people back. And, you know, another example was Alan Reyes, who, who was Andrew Shear's Quebec lieutenant, widely regarded as the best organizer, conservative organizer in Quebec, sidelined in the first period of O'Toole's leadership, now back in the House leadership team and named as Quebec lieutenant. So I think all these things are designed to ensure O'Toole's survival, but also to uh, ensure a degree of unity and self-policing in the caucus. We all know we just came off an election that nobody wanted and pretty much ended up in the same place. What can we expect in the in, in the next session? Uh, is Are we going to be short on patience here? Or because nobody has any money, they just want to drag this out? Uh, again, it was supposed to be toxic prior to the election. What, what will it be like now? Well, I think the NDP's already shown that they are they are willing to um, talk to the Liberals about passing uh, the government's legislation. We'll wait, we wait and see whether it will end, end up being a formal deal. And we've seen these deals before, you know, where one side agrees to wave through confidence and supply measures for a period of two or three years, and the other side agrees to pass legislation that that the uh, the junior partner wants. You know, given the closeness in the NDP and Liberal platforms. It's not hard to see the Liberals saying, sure, we'll, we'll do something on pharmacare, or sure, we'll do something on housing. So I think that's a, an eminent uh, possibility. I think from the NDP, NDP point of view, I just don't understand why they would do it. You know, the history of these things is not good. We've seen junior partners decimated in the UK where Lib- Liberal Democrats uh, were part of a, a Conservative government. Uh, we've seen the Green Party and BC not rewarded for, for propping up uh, Horgan's administration, you know, mm. they propped him up for a, for a period of two or three years, and then the next election came along, and Horgan gets a majority. He's, he's the one who gets the, the, the kudos for the things that went right, and the Greens don't get much credit, and they get blamed for things that go wrong. So it, it, it's inexplicable to me why the, the NDP would want to, to do that, but I think they will, and I think we'll see a degree of stability for two or three years, and that's probably not bad news for the Conservatives, because it gives them some time to to get this team weathered in. You know, another f- factor of the reshuffle was the fact that he brought nine of 17 rookie MPs into his, uh, into his inner circle as critics. And there's some very able people there, some, some who were provincial MPs mm. in places like Nova Scotia or um, Alberta, New Brunswick, um, and some young up-and-comers, people like Melissa Lanceman, who is going to be the, the transport critic. Uh, so, you know, Probably what we can expect is a little bit more stability 
uh, a little bit more cooperation from the NDP and maybe a little bit less noise from the Conservatives. Nobody can afford to or wants to go back to an election anytime soon. John Iveson is with us. You can read his latest in the National Post. John, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Okay, thanks, Scott. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That is a wrap for the show. Thanks for listening. Greatly appreciate it. Have yourself a great weekend. Thanks to Will and Ben and Ted and Diana for all helping out today. And as always on Hamilton Today, we leave it to you, the good CHML listener. For the last word. Is it too late for me and my garage band to apply to play the Grey Cup?